Well, uh, let's start out a little bit about your background. I went through all of your website, and then you're like coming from a you know born in Paris, France, coming from an Algerian. You know, it just explained it to me, right? Yeah, a little right. bit. Well, know. the the technical way to explain it's pretty simple, but uh, maybe doesn't give you the whole picture. Is that you know, well, there's there's the technical explanation, and then there's the sexy explanation. I could give you the sexy one. Give me the technical first, and oh. then I'm, I'm interested. No, 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 the first, the first, and then I'm interested to see how much more sexy it gets when you give me the okay. like, the, the good one. The technical yeah. one is that my father, as I mentioned, was um, was born in London, Protestant uh, upbringing, and my mother was born in North Africa in Algeria, and then she was raised in Paris, and then I was born in Paris and grew up in France, my sister and I, and then we moved here when I was five. And then we did our schooling in the U.S., uh, in Chicago, and then the East Coast. So, okay, that's fine. You know, I grew up, I was the French kid in the U.S. Every time people would come over, we were speaking French, we were making crepes at home. Everyone's like, oh, you're so French. I go over to France, they're like, oh, you're such an American cousin, you know? <laughs> yeah. You speak funny, you talk, you, you like peanut butter, what's wrong with you, you know? Yeah. yeah. So that's the technical one. You want the sexy one? Yeah, yeah, what's the sexy one? The sexy one is that my father was this rock and jazz guitarist who was working at Club Med. And then he meets this French woman while they're on the coast of Spain in Cadaqués, which is near where Salvador Dali's house is. I, I've been there. Oh, actually. okay. That, that, that is, it's like the most picturesque. They actually yeah. have rules. The, the, that small city has rules. Like every house has to be painted white to keep it so picturesque. And uh, if you walk, it's like this insane, like walking through the village, is, it's basically like on a mountain. Yes. So, yeah. yeah uh -huh. So you had to like walk up through these cobblestone streets. Oh, right. And, uh, you and can everything. tell me all about it. I yeah. haven't been there myself. You've, you've never been there? No, no. Well, well, I wasn't even born yet. They just met, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, but they never took you back or anything? Oh, no, that, oh yeah. Oh, my God. It's the most, yeah. That, so I'm dying to go. We might go this summer. So they met. My dad was the, you know, the British guitarist in the band. Wake up at noon, you know, have a huge bar tab, do play a two-hour set every night, and you were working at Club Med for for six months out of the year. And then my mom was this French woman there, and they met, and they fell in love, and then they had me, and blah, blah, blah. But I think that's a much sexier description of yeah. where I come from than, you know. <laughs> but both of, my fam both of my grandparents, both sides were very religious. And so we kind of grew up with a non-religious quality at first. Um, my mom's recently become religious. And I've been fascinated with religion in terms of the identity that gets put on you. Because, you know, I spent, my name's Richard Carrick. People don't know that I'm Jewish. And then half the people who meet me, they're like, he's so obviously Jewish. <laughs> the other half have no idea. Why do they, like, they say that because your personality, because you look a certain way, or they come into your house and they see happy Hanukkah signs everywhere? No, not when they, when, when they come into the house, they know. But before then, I don't know what it is. Is it the nose? Is it the way I speak? I don't know what it is, but, you know. So I was kind of fascinated because for many years I didn't really talk about the fact that I was Jewish. And it wasn't that I avoided it, I, but it just never came up. I wasn't practicing. And so as a composer, I had this identity that was very far removed from my personal roots. And my personal roots, everyone thought my personal roots were French because they knew I was born there. So they thought, oh, he must really be into Debussy. And, and the thing was, 
I love Debussy. He's actually my favorite composer, but it's not because of my family. My family's from the poor outskirts of Paris. You know, they're Algerian Jews who grew up in the outskirts of Paris. This is not the Debussy Paris yeah. at all. But, you know, if people wanted to think that, that's fine. But <laughs> that's not... So I had, I had this kind of all of these conflicting kind of identities that I had. And then when I started in my 30s, I figured I just had to deal with this stuff. It was, it was just more and more important for music to somehow deal with a lot of the issues that are going on, not only not from like a narcissistic point of view, but just to figure out where I'm coming from and figure out what I can say. Because, you know, the most effective way to say something is know where it came from. You don't want to like shortchange your voice, so you kind of have to know all of these things. Why did it have to come from your ethnic or religious background? Why couldn't it have been some other type of introspection that led you there? Why right, did it, why right. did it have to be this kind of old like history coming from your parents and right. you know Jewish tradition? Why was it that that you had to deal with? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think it's because I dealt with all of the other stuff when I was a teenager and when I was in my 20s. It was all about, you know, growing up with like existentialist philosophy and kind of, and all of the, the stuff that I was reading and being very influenced by what I read and what I was interested in and not at all related to where I was living. I was living in the Midwest. I was living outside of New York. You know, I had no identity with outside of Chicago. You know, the the French family, my father was very strange. Everyone was like, who's this crazy British guy who's really friendly running around naked in town? It's just like... What were you doing in the Midwest? Um, they were working for Club Med. So we moved out there when we were kids. And uh, my dad, what happened in Club Med was they, nobody spoke English. And my dad was the only guy who spoke English. So they when they came to the U.S., they kind of sent my father to start working for opening up offices for Club Med. So we moved here and we... Excuse me, we grew up here. You have to explain to me what Club Med is real quick. I mean, we can maybe cut this. We don't need to put this in, but I just, <laughs> I just don't know what Club Med is. It's a vacation organization. Okay, so if you don't know Club Med, you don't know its most famous um, side name, which it used to be called Club Bed, because it was, it was started in the, in the late 50s, early 60s in France, very swinging period, where a bunch of singles would go, and you'd go, and for two weeks, you would just hang out there, There'd be bedrooms. No one had locks on their doors. There wouldn't. It was just like a huge party. It was just no bar. way. It was like a swingers party. It wasn't a swingers party per se, but sometimes they would get close to that. It was mostly for singles. But it was, it was wait wait was like the secret name club bed or was it like did it say club bed? No 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 no, no that, that was what that was its nickname. That's okay. what some people would go there for. Okay. Yeah. So club. It's short for Club Mediterranée. Okay. And it's the first all-inclusive vacation package. They invented it. That's now famous. Like, they have them all in the U.S. See, I see. I, I remember seeing commercials for Club Med where it was like, learn how to tightrope at Club Med. And it was a bunch of families and yep, stuff that's like right. that. Yeah, but back, but back in the day when your parents met, it was, quote, Club Bed where, like, exactly. there were no locks in the doors. And it was very, like, 60s, like, free love type of thing. Exactly. And that when that was where that's your origin, huh? Yeah, that's where out I of came club from. Bed. Yeah, and apparently so I I do have a claim which is I think I'm the only classical composer to have come from Club Med. <laughs> I'm a true Club Med baby and I wow. think I'm the only one. Except I'm definitely not the most famous artist because uh Luc Besson is also a Club Med baby. You know the the French film director? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, his parents and my parents I guess were friends. They they were 
they were at Club Med in the 60s at the same time. Holy crap. Yeah. You yeah, think you were so. conceived? Oh, no, 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 this is ridiculous. But like, uh, like a catechism. <laughs> we're getting very like personal. No, here, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I actually know where I was conceived. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Okay, uh, yeah, I'll, ba- I'll back off a little bit. But it's, uh, it's you, not you, that personal because I wasn't really there. But, yeah. You know. But you raise a you raise the an interesting point is how do you what's the point of of creating this identity because we all create our identities right and it's like. You know, it's true in that bio that that I have now, it's focused more on heritage rather than on current thinking, you know, whereas like for a long time, it was based more on what I was reading and what I was listening to and, and the movies I was into. And I don't know, you know, there's a point where you kind of start to ask questions and you start to, it's it's almost like a way to expand the realm that what you do becomes interesting it's like you expand the realm of possibilities there was a point in in time where i was really interested in limiting the possibility because i believe that in music the more you would limit your materials the more it could ultimately kind of go through this funnel and come out on the other side and express a vast expanse of possibilities the the aesthetics of no yeah yeah and i did that for a while and i found that I couldn't keep doing that because it wasn't it wasn't compelling me in the same way. So it's kind of looking for other things. And when was the switch? When was the when was the moment where you were saying to yourself, "Okay, this type of deep philosophical thought outside of any ethnic or origins that I have personally uh, is the way to go?" And then when did you switch it to? Who am I on a technical mm-hmm. level, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I don't know if it's such a direct path to that. I mean, I feel like there, there are multiple paths to get to that point. But one of the things that happened was after I finished my PhD in San Diego, which was 2001, a few things happened. One thing that happened is my father passed away right after that. Okay. And that was kind of devastating. And I couldn't really write music for almost two years. I moved to New York a short while later. And um, so I kind of severed a lot of ties, musical ties. And my father was a musician. So there was a big musical influence there. And, you know, for example, I couldn't, he's a jazz guitarist, and I couldn't really listen to jazz after that. So, you know, I didn't really listen to jazz for years after that. And jazz was such a big part of my upbringing. Do you listen to it now? I just started this year with my kids. Yeah. Okay. I just started. Yeah, it was kind of strange. How old are your kids? They're four and five. Okay. But is it is it like an introduction to grandpa? It is. It is. But it's also just an introduction to music that yeah, I loved true. so much that yeah. I want to share with them. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, that was, what is that, 12 years, 11 years. Wow. <clears throat> it's a long time to stop listening to something that was so influential in your upbringing, you know. Yeah. So, so there were a bunch of musical ties that were severed and so forth and... So musically, what happened was I started kind of looking for new ways to organize my ideas because the ideas that I were having weren't gelling together in the way that they used to. They didn't make sense anymore. It seemed, it just wasn't, you know, you put it together and then in the past it would all stick together and become this wonderful thing. And now I was putting things together and they weren't sticking together. What, what about it were you dis- can I mean, can you express that in a more concrete sense? Can you point to something and say, this is what was unsatisfying about it? This is why it wasn't sticking together? 
you know, I ask my, myself that question all the time still, because like, if you look at musically what I did, there were, there were a number of pieces in graduate school that culminated in this piece called The Veins of Marble that I wrote for the new ensemble. It's for 12 musicians. That was the piece that was kind of a defining moment in my graduate period. And that's the piece that kind of sustained me for a number of years after graduate school. What do you mean sustained? It was so successful. Artistically, yeah, 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 yeah. artistically was kind of a, the piece that I identified. I, that was my you know, artistic calling card. So the pieces you wrote after that piece were legitimate because the veins of marble were, was a successful piece in your head. Uh, it actually was kind of the reverse. It was the veins of marble culminated all of my ideas up until that point. So they were a culmination of, of family resemblances and a number of the pieces that I had written before. And they all came together in that piece. And that was, that was the true monolith piece with, um, as I called them at the time, multilinear linearities. <laughs> that's, that's so, that's Such so a good. grad school thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. I was going to th- thank you for saying that before I did. I can't, I can't say it in a straight face anymore. It's that's, just... that, I mean, good, good for you for not being able to say it with a straight face anymore. Because I think some people who say that with a straight face like years later don't they never, I don't know, they had never had the, they, they never had a moment or a crisis like you did. Right. To the point where you can where say, you it. and out- that's good, it's healthy, right? You have to outgrow all these things. I mean, graduate school is a great, great time period. And the one goal of graduate school is to get out of graduate school. Because once you get out, then you can put that, you know, I, I advise a lot of grad students now. And I think it's great what you do in it. And it's great the day you finish it. Because that's when it's all going to come together somehow. It's really, really important. I'm really Sorry. interested in I'm really interested in this culmination monolith piece. And so mm-hmm. even though you may laugh when describing it now, you know, describe it to me. What were the ideas that you were trying to put together? Why do you think it was successful in a culmination of everything you were working towards up to that point? I mean it's a dense question, but it's a dense it's, question. Yeah. Well the re I mean, it was a culminating piece because I mean the, the kind of technical answer is it's a culminating piece because it actually dealt with all the, the technical things I was dealing with. Dealt with the microtonal aspect. It dealt with how do you deal with instruments idiomatically. Like I was writing for strings very idiomatically, which was a very different way of approaching winds, which was a different way of approaching the guitar and the mandolin and the harp and the percussion. So I was developing ways of writing for each of these instruments that was unrelated to the other instruments. So I had all these techniques, and then all of a sudden this piece, I had to put all of these techniques together. And there was score to tour and things like that. And then there was just this general sense that you can have, you know, one of the big ideas at that point was you can have music happening. It's, the, the piece organized in terms of three sub-ensembles. And each of the ensembles has a musical identity that kind of gets projected over time, and that projection is at its own pace, different from the other two. So they're very slowly interacting with each other, but they never quite come together. They never quite kind of talk to each other, but they're always aware of each other. It's, a, it's an idea that I got when I was doing a lot of improvisation. You know, you've got that a trio sense. of improvisers. Yeah. You're doing your own thing, but you're always listening to the other people. So you don't want to just mimic the others. You want to kind of keep your thing going, but you want to fit in some sort of counterpoint with the other people. And so I was starting to write 
tri- I wrote a trio that way. And then, you know, I took all the techniques and made it into this large ensemble piece. And that piece ended up, it had a very strange sense of, of repetition, which I called kind of like evolution, where things, every time they were repeated, they were slightly changing. They weren't changing in terms of like, theme and variations where every time they get more complex or further away from the original source, they're actually just kind of evolving. Sometimes they'd get really messy, sometimes they get really clear. It was a more flexible sense of, of change. But they were changing at their own rate, and there was this global sense that it was like this big monolith that was slowly evolving. It's like all these huge boulders kind of slowly moving around the immediate texture of the music at any given second was so rich that there was, it's quite an evocative sound throughout, you know, and that was kind of the culmination of that. And then I stopped, I didn't really write much music after that. I kind of wrote some very small pieces. So I started building up again a few years later with different ideas and the different ideas couldn't be held together with such formal constraints anymore. It just didn't make sense. So this is where the flow cycle stuff comes in. Like, why, why did those formal constraints stop making sense to you? I think it had to do with two things. But the main thing is it stopped making sense because I think I figured a lot of things out in that piece. So when, you got answers, and then once you got the answers, you were like, I'm done. That was the answer. It's not that I'm done. It's just the drive to write music is the search for the unknown. I write music because it's something I haven't heard before. And I want to do something that I haven't heard before. And in that piece, I culminated a lot of these little things that I had come up with and put them together in this big, and it made sense. And a lot of answers got produced from that. I could have continued doing that, I guess. But that's, it's not like a conscious choice. It's not like I said, I don't want to do that anymore. I was actually trying to do it. It's just my instinct was saying, "Mm," my instinct was leading me somewhere else. Everybody composes differently. I compose the way when I sit down to compose. Honestly, it can go in a million different directions. I don't have have a strict way of composing. I don't have a pre-composed rigid plan before I start writing. And I really... you know, I kind of trust my instincts and I go through things a lot and I revise and I revise and I say, is this, do I, do I identify with this passage? Do I identify with these 10 seconds of music? Do I identify with this way of approaching the oboe? Do I identify with these four notes together? And if I do, then that's the basis of something.
You have to trust what you do. Um, now, trusting it takes time because when you write things, sometimes I'll write stuff and I'm not sure about it. And then a few days later, I'll play it again on the piano or I'll get my friends to kind of play through it or whatever. And it makes perfect sense. And other times I do it again and it actually is a disaster. What you learn from all those situations is you have different types of instincts. Like sometimes you'll have the instinct, and this was very common earlier on, which I still think is very important, is the instinct is, okay, I'm, kind of, I'm a musical person. I've, I've, I know I can finish a piece of music. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is something that I didn't know most through grad school because you're like, this is such a daunting task. You want to write something incredible. You want to write something that you've never done before. Can you do it? So I feel like I can write a piece, but for it to be something really, really important and significant, I don't know if I can do that. Every time, I don't know if I can do it. So when you sit down to write, you really want to, you have different instincts. And, and sometimes when your instincts is saying, okay, stop thinking about the musical side of things, because I know that things are going to be musical, because that's kind of how I am. So I have to really focus on this, like, 
either bringing in this kind of high formalist approach to where things are supposed to go or something very conceptual. And I focus on those things and kind of naturally the, the music comes out musically. Because if I focus on just music, yeah, I, I can write musical things. You know, lots of people are very musical. But it's really important to have some sort of structural friction that kind of sparks the music into a more dimensionalized kind of life. Okay, so let's talk about how that applies to the flow cycle now. Because um, that was a very kind of broad yes. like sense of almost describing what I would say is like a little bit of a methodology. Like mm -hmm. I, so I pictured you sitting down at the piano, whatever, or a desk or whatever you do. Mm -hmm. And then you're saying, now I need to do this. Now I need to do this. Now I need to do this and deciding which type of brain you're going to use. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm just, I'm just wondering how that translates into the actual piece itself outside of a methodology. Well, the flow cycle came about, do you want the whole history? The history is kind of long. <laughs> But well, then, then, I'll, then the, I'll edit it you, down if it's too the, long, you know. So give 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 me the whole thing because there there are two histories. One is that my first encounter with the flow concept by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, and this flow concept is one in which um, skill and ability are matched and gridded, and so you're kind of that you want to match your skill level to the level of difficulty of the task at hand and and you're kind of you get to this point where you're immersed in the task where everything else kind of becomes secondary to your enjoyment of the task and that part of the enjoyment is the learning aspect and the getting more difficult because you're able to and and all of these things you know and we know what flow is we know when you're in the zone and so i was i encountered that concept years before because you know, my sister introduced it to me She's a psychologist, and she was, she was introducing it as a, you know, here's somebody who actually figured out what it takes to be in flow, interviewed thousands of people, figured out all of the parameters that are involved, but presents it to you in the very human way, in a way that you can understand, in a way that's non, it's as definitive as it can be, but it's not kind of dogmatic about it, you know, it's saying that. So that was really interesting how you could, I could start to think about it in a psychological point of view. And then the flip side is that I was in Dar es Salaam one summer with my wife and we were, uh, she was working and I was trying to compose this piece and it was going absolutely nowhere. Every single day I'd wake up, every single day I'd write all this great music. The next day I'd wake up, I'd look at all the music I'd written the day before. None of it made sense. I what was do you mean on what level did it did Well, it I just looked sense? at it and I was like, mm, it just didn't make sense. Like it all made sense the day before. I look at it the next day, it doesn't make sense. So I'd write some new stuff. I said, oh, now this is like pointing to exactly where I want to be. And then the next day I'd wake up and I'd look at it and it's like, mm, I have no idea what it's about again. And so I had to step back and I had to say, okay, how am I going to deal with all of these things? How am I going to, what, what are my goals here? And then I started to bring in this flow concept back in. I started thinking about music in terms of just one parameter like i you know each one of those little ideas those little gestures were pointing very specifically towards another pitch or towards another rhythm or something like that and it was too specific you know and so i kind of pulled back and i started thinking music in a much broader sense in a broader stroke and the flow concept was a kind of a vessel for me to put all of the ideas that i had and let them all kind of point in different directions and, and slowly start to steer all of these ideas into larger musical 
gestures and musical ideas and musical forms and so forth. So th so that's kind of what happened. I wrote this piece called In Flow for solo violin. It's pretty different from what I'd been writing before. And then I got the idea to write the cycle by a violist in Austria, Petra Ackermann. And uh, she said, well, why don't you write string trio, three solos, a duo, trio. And that was a great idea. So I wrote her the viola solo. And what became very interesting with the flow cycle is that it wasn't a commissioned piece. So I would work on it whenever I had a performance opportunity to, to write somebody a piece. And so there were other pieces in between. So in fact, I kept going back to the cycle as an escape from the other pieces I was writing. Your obligations, your legitimate obligations. Yeah, I mean, not yeah. that there were huge commissions at the time, but, but you know, there were larger ensemble pieces and so forth. But what was interesting is I'd go back and, and go back to the same idea, but because I had written other pieces, the ideas would come out differently. So I was actually trying, I was really going for the flow concept every time I was writing one of the pieces in the flow cycle. But there was always this layer, different layers of experience from piece to piece. And so each piece came out with a different quality and a different dimension.
the way you describe I'm I'm glad you finally described this concept of flow to me because I was reading through it a little bit and then I also listened to the piece and I was having a, a a little bit of a difficult time to see how it actually existed within the music. But I think the way you're describing it to me now it makes a little bit more sense where it's really almost just a state of mind that you try and get yourself in so you can write in a comfortable and skillful way and almost in a way of at your highest level where your skill and ability is matched. Uh, Okay, see, this is where it gets tricky. Okay, this is what a lot of people think. But writing the flow cycle was not about me getting into a flow state. Actually, writing the flow cycle was about taking the parameters to create a flow state and thinking about how you can write music with those parameters. So what I developed were these things called flow filters. So in a sense, it's a cross between writing music that's kind of flows, but it's also about thinking about what the parameters are to create flow and relating that to what an audience member might be hearing when they hear, for example, a small gesture or a long sustained note, and how much of the attention of the audience gets sucked by this gesture versus that gesture, and then the bouncing back and forth between the two. And so I'm thinking as much about how much these particular sounds pull the audience in and out of interest as they do musically. Here's, for example, right? If you look at a flow chart, we go back to this idea of the ability of the person in flow, and then is the X line, and then the Y line would be the level of difficulty of their activity. So if you're just learning how to play basketball, you might be able to dribble, but you can't shoot a free throw. But then as you get better, you will be able to shoot a free throw, right? So if you try to shoot free throws as a beginner, after two or three times, you're going to get really frustrated. And if you're only shooting free throws, then you might get really frustrated and stop. But if you shoot a few free throws, you miss them, you go back to dribbling, you get back into it. Okay, it makes sense now, yeah. And so musically, what I was thinking was, okay, these particular, this, I'd write something, I'd say, well, this one, this one is kind of like a high level of difficulty because it's kind of naughty. It has all of these qualities. Sonically for the listener to decode. Yes. Okay. And part of that sonic identity is the behavioral aspect of the performer, which I took into account as well. So the idiomatic aspect, because these are solos, duos, and eventually a trio, right? So if you see the cellist really high up or like jerking two octaves back on the same string, that, has, that encodes a certain level of difficulty as well. So there's a little level of kind of flow within the performance aspect of the piece as well. When I was pushing things more into domains that were difficult, then I would kind of find ways to bring them back into other areas. But what was interesting was finding materials that weren't necessarily easier to understand, but, nece- but more kind of the baseline of the piece itself. So in a way, it's, I have a feeling I'm going to say, I'm going to try and reduce it, and you're going to correct me, but let's just do that. So, <laughs> well, there are two, two composers talking. Yeah, How can we yeah, not contradict that, each that's other? That's true. That's true. <laughs> But in a way, it's almost understanding the learning curve of the listener, almost like teaching the listener, like 
Here's a very basic, simple pattern. I've added something else that you can now incorporate into that pattern. Now that you're comfortable with that world, I'll keep on adding it again. Now that you're and it, it and so forth, you know, it can it continues like that, and in a way where their listening ability is equal to their listening skill mm-hmm. at all times, and it's very and it's a very fluid listening experience where they don't even realize that they're being pushed and challenged and then they end up in the place that they wouldn't have been able to comprehend in the beginning of it yeah is that is that like an archaic way of putting this very delicate thing that that's that's definitely part of it that's definitely part of it the only thing that's tricky about that and this is what you could ask me about which is a hard thing to answer is who's the audience member right the tricky thing is people think that I'm writing for a particular type of listener, but I'm not really writing for a particular type of listener because when I say the listener in the abstract, I'm kind of talking about the listener in the abstract. I'm not talking about anyone. I'm not saying that everybody should be hearing all of these things. I'm just kind of using these charts in an abstract way to create these filters, to create music. Are they physical charts? Are they like scientific? Because right now you're, mm-hmm. you were describing this as something very philosophical that like couldn't be nailed down. But are there literal charts that you look at to yes. say that at this point I add this and at this point I add this? You mean for my composing? Or for your, for, for your for... composing and also this uh, like flow philosophy that I've never heard of before. The, the is flow it, is concept it, yeah. is full of charts. Okay. There are charts that show you how you get into anxiety, how you get into boredom, how you get into relaxation, and so forth. No way, yes, really? absolutely. I just... Um, Can there, I have some? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. composing, but that's, that, seems, that seems interesting. There'll be a, a New York Times article about... I just wrote one, so it should be coming out soon. And then there's a... There's some charts on there as well. But yeah, you can... You go to Wikipedia. It's all over that. And his concept is very popular. His His concept was popular... His Bill Clinton's favorite author was Csikszentmihalyi, and he's written a number of books. He's still alive. I sent him the CD, and he was really excited about the recording. What did he and say about it? He said no one had ever approached it that way before, the flow concept. He said people had kind of tried to be in flow, but no one actually analyzed the flow concept and generated musical ideas from it. Uh, so he was really into it. I'd love to do a concert of the flow cycle and have him there and have an interview with him after the piece. Wouldn't that be amazing? And Bill Clinton. Right? <laughs> and Bill Clinton, yeah. All that stuff kind of happened. It finished up in 2009. Yeah, when you started talking about it, I didn't know that it was... I thought it was just more like a very... It sounded almost hippie-ish, almost, mm-hmm. the way you're describing it. But I didn't know it Self-help. was... Self-help. Yeah, yeah, almost... <laughs> Almost bordering on self-help, which mm-hmm. may be like a little bit, that makes me a little bit skeptical. But if it's actually in these concrete charts and something that can be mapped out, then, I mean, that's super interesting now. I mean, and well, how, it, how, did you, how did you apply it? it? Was it a literal translation of a chart where you would just, it's something happens in a chart where, it's, where it says, now you're ready to go on to the next step fluidly? So, and that's when in the music you would add, I don't know, new material or something like how, how strict were you with some it? Some of it was that. I mean, Chick Semihai is a distinguished professor of psychology in Claremont. And he's, he, the, what's interesting about his stuff is it is in the self-help camp. I mean, it could be, but his whole concept is coming out of happiness. How do you 
kind of nurture happiness and optimism. His whole thing is really about optimism. How do you have a fulfilling life? So it is completely self-help. But he's a rigid scientist, and he's he's done thousands of interviews. He's he's prepared, you know. He's really expanded these things, and and he does it from a scientific point of view. It's not just uh, kind of with these nice statements and nice ideas and so forth. So he's backed it up with with a, a ton of research. He's also a great writer which really helps, you know, I mean, <laughs> you can have great ideas if you can't articulate the ideas well. So um, early on, I did a lot of graphic sketching of the ideas and kind of applied them. Simple flow filters were kind of timbral changes throughout. And again, similar to the veins of marble where like there was kind of a counterpoint. So as timbre was changing and peaking at one point, intervallic content was kind of changing in another way and harmonic by implication, harmonic values were changing a different way and, and register and so forth and gesture. And then as the pieces kept going, a few things happened. One thing was that harmonically it got simpler in a sense, but that also allowed for more timbral richness to kind of come come into that. And it was kind of it starting becoming modal in a sense, these pieces. They're very modal, especially yeah, the last that. piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, I think that was part of my just, you know my my lack of interest in having music that doesn't sound good you know like like on, on like i write a lot of microtonal music as well and i think it sounds beautiful but i'm not really interested i don't come out of a schoenberg 12 tone you know my teachers did my two main teachers both came out of that tradition who who are those um, teachers brian Fernieho and and uh, Mar uh mario davidovsky Oh, because you, yeah, UCSD. UCSD yeah. for Fernieho, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so they came out of this t kind of 12-tone language, you know. But that was never really something that resonated with me. I, I know all the techniques or a lot of them and, and um, obviously, I've applied yeah. them. Super famous guys, um, yeah. So that was also the beginning of like me getting into this space where, you know, like finding harmonies that really resonate. And, and you know, this is like influenced by like music for 18 musicians and kind of like just this music sounds so good <laughs> yeah it just resonates so well when did you start going in that direction of this just sounds good and can you put more of a concrete <laughs> well can you and can you put more of a concrete stamp on other than it's just a feeling that you have like like you know listening to music for 18 musicians you're saying oh this just sounds good can you point to what about that makes you love it that much yeah, no, of course, it's not just a feeling because, <clears throat> as I said earlier, if you just go on feeling, you write music that's very musical and it, it and there's not that friction. And I'm always looking for that friction. But what's interesting is there are different ways of creating that friction. I mean, when I talk about things that sound good, well, put it this way, right? If you, you know this old this old expression or this this old this was very popular when I was a I don't know maybe you 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 heard the same thing when you were in grad school maybe um, the first thirty seconds of a piece sh should tell you how long the piece is going to be so like you put on the first thirty seconds of Mahler's Third Symphony you know that's going to be a very long piece oh I see because the pacing is so slow right. yeah I had a right. composition teacher describe that to me as like the opening scene you see somebody slowly walking towards you and it takes them two minutes to get 
enter the screen fully mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you know that it's going it's not going to be a short film right yeah yeah, right. yeah. so when i, I was yeah, when i, I was told that. that as an undergrad i thought that was complete crap i mean it was it was true but i thought it was like who cares because you can do so many more things than you know but now i think of it and i think well but the implication is that a material doesn't ever exist in and of itself when you do something, it always has implications of something outside of the moment in time. That's what's so powerful about music is that at any given point where you're at, you have experiences relating to what you heard before and possibilities of where it's going. So when I say something just sounds good, the implication is also that it's fitting in a larger context that's very welcoming. So part of it, I mean, it's very, very technical thing it's like yes sustained sounds you know i mean i like the saxophone quartet i just wrote it's all very kind of they're always playing all four saxophone players are playing and they're always almost all on the same pitch and there's a lot of repetition it's kind of like going in and out of unison all the time you know and that's something that that's a sound world that i think is really important that's a sound world I want to hear, and that's a sound world I think other people want to hear, you know? At the same time, I'm not really interested in hearing, like, a minimalist piece unless it's got something underneath it that's kind of pushing me in another direction as well. Yeah, maybe it's something as simple as that. I mean, my last two big pieces, my adagios for string quartet and harmonixi for, str- for sax quartet, have both been pieces that have really full kind of voluptuous sounds, you know, for, for the ensemble. And maybe that's a direction I'm kind of, I want to continue, you know, really kind of getting in inside the sounds and getting the most out of the ensemble, which kind of excludes a lot of extended techniques that I love and that I perform and things like that. That's well, you, you, you just answered my question before <laughs> I, uh, Okay, so this thing you're obsessed with is a very kind of funneled, singular sound almost. The way mm-hmm. you're de- the way you're describing it mm-hmm. now, and do you think that do like do you ever see yourself writing a piece that would incorporate a more extended vocabulary mm-hmm. and still be able to quote resonate with you to the point where you can point to it and I'm like where like it was music for eighteen musicians where you go yes that's what I like. Or does it always have to be a very singular, for lack of a better word, traditional sound? Yeah, of course. I mean, this this was just one aspect of it. I mean, for example, I wrote this piece called Sonic Tapestry Communication, which is using pre-recorded sounds. And the instruments are kind of getting into these heavy extended techniques. And they're kind of being engulfed by, these, by the, the sounds on the recording, which they're somewhat synchronized with. I think this idea, if you look at Lachemann's three string quartets, right? We were um, both at that Mivos concert. Right. Yeah. And That was uh, insane. That piece was so good. Yeah. yeah. The third string quartet. It's, a, it's really a, a masterwork. I, I love that piece. Um, we programmed that piece in 2008 when we invited Lachemann to New York. We brought him here and we played that piece and we played the guitar duo. Dave Shively and I played. And that piece gets, the string quartet gets played all the time. It's an amazing piece. But you look at his first piece, right, Grand Torso, and that's like such a catalog of incredible richness of how to approach the instruments. And his second piece is, there's so much kind of 
so much denial, you know, because it's so soft and it's, it's so rich within this triple P world. And then the third quartet, is, you know, it's probably the most traditional of the three. And Lachemann's music in general is, if you're going to call it traditional, if it makes a real sound, then his music's definitely getting more traditional. But, you know, being of a different generation than Lachemann, I don't think extended techniques represents modernity anymore. Neither do I think that we have to abandon these ideas of modernity just because we live in a postmodernist, postminimalist New York world where... People are happy that pop music is happening all the time in different formats, you know. Yeah. I think we still have to push, but the places we push are not necessarily just in extended techniques. But it's really a new, it's identifying with music in a really deep way and with, in a really kind of constantly visceral and imaginative way. Yeah. And know? there's no unified push either nowadays. Everybody has their own push. But that's always been the case. I mean, whoever, there was never a unified push. I mean, right? In the 70s, you, you, had, you had this group of composers thinking music had to be like this, and you had, uh, you had the uptown, you had the downtown, you had the, the Parisians, you had those in Cologne, you had, you, know, you had all these different groups, and they all believed that music was going to solve all of our problems if only everybody kind of listened to the way they were doing it. Yeah. But I think nobody thinks that, and nobody's like, this is going to solve all of the problems if everybody listens to the way. But why not? I mean, why don't composers think that anymore? Because that's egomaniacal and not healthy and impossible. I just disagree with any type of ideology in music now. I think you can highlight a problem. You can shed light on a problem. You can offer people different ways of listening to things. Like, for example these flow charts now and i think that's good and i think that's great and i think doing that is better than saying this is the answer so here's the thing i basically agree with you but here's the problem i have with is that it's hard to tell if people care that much what do you mean if care, who, care that what much people about, what people well, a you composer mean that, cares that much about like how does a okay if a composer's job is no longer to have an ideological view if the composer's job is to make music that adds to the wealth of music of the world then and offer something new a new perspective but not a complete perspective you think that that's the goal of many people these days no i think it's my goal <laughs> <laughs> do you see the problem <laughs> yeah 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 i do no good get back to what you were saying like who well, like so okay if that's if your goal is to do something new, I get it. But if your goal is just to add to the wealth of the world, then anything you add, then quality doesn't kind of come into it, you know. How, what's the difference between writing a piece and, and working really hard to make it a great piece? I don't know. Anyway, I mean, I tried to do it. I, this is why I started a group because, you know, apart from like, you know, I started the group with, with David Shively and, we basically started it to perform music we didn't hear. We weren't hearing in New York. And that's why we started it, as well as wanting to play with musicians and do all that. But it's really important to kind of look, to keep looking for those things because, um, you know, that's not what the press is necessarily interested in. That's not what 
sells tickets. That's not what's going to get you your next opera produced at the big opera shows and everything else. You know, all everyone else are looking for something else. They're looking for marketability and everything else. There are ways to do that. And nowadays, with our polystylistic language that we have in music, we've got so many references that are very popular. You know, you've got tons of great music out in the world that has been incorporated into concert music very beautifully. And it's great and it's really exciting. But then there's also music that's off the beaten path, you know. And, and I think when I see composers kind of really dealing with what they're interested in and kind of taking it to some stuff they didn't know before, I think that that's really important. The ensemble you're talking about is either or. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. When did you start that? Uh, I moved back to New York. We, you know, our first official concert was 2004 or five, but we didn't really have a season until 2008, 2007, eight. Um, we were doing one concert a year, basically. What did you, oh, that's it? One concert a year? One or two. We, we, we were doing the two night spring festival. Ah, it's so, it's so hard to get things done in New York. It's well, you know, the way grants work, you can't get grants unless you've been around for three years. So we we just did that for a few years and then after in 2007 we got a bunch of invitations at the kitchen that's when we invited Lachemann, Austrian Cultural Forum that was and that the Mata festival all happened that year so when you started you're saying you you started it because you thought something was missing from the scene in New York what was that what was the lack of kind of a you know a, a non academic kind of a more europe so it was like a mix you know our our older mission state one was more like the the mixture between the american experimentalists and the european avant-garde and emerging composers so kind of some music that lives in between those three places um it's expanded a bit because new york's changed it's changed a a lot. lot yeah our interest now is actually in music that's still still not heard much i mean there's music that's strange and comp- like these gems, you know, sometimes you find these gems by famous composers that never get played. And sometimes you find these gems by unknown composers. And then there's this issue of like programming. You can program a beautiful concert, you know, and that's really something uh, I think is so important, you know, and, and Dave and I talk about this. We spent so much time actually programming and figuring out the order and figuring out exactly which pieces are going to balance and figuring out, you know, these things. So you walk away with an experience of a concert piece. Curating is super, super difficult. So much more mm-hmm. difficult than people think it is. Describe to me like the research that comes in to, for you to be like, oh, this is what's missing here mm-hmm. in this scene. This is what we need to be doing. How do you make the decision that what you think people need to be exposed to in a scene, but I mean, obviously I'm talking about New York, in New York, mm-hmm. like, because you were saying like in 2008, we did a lot of Lachamam, we did a lot of Haas, that's not happening now, mm-hmm. either because we started doing it or for other trends like Haas coming over here to Columbia or, you know, Lachamam being the composer that he is. Well, they're he, they're known yeah, composers. Yeah, yeah, that, that they're that's pretty the much reason. here now. Lots of composers mm-hmm. do that, Mivos, you know, mm-hmm. and now how do you, how do you find out what's missing now? Like it's 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 almost a in question of saying like how do you stay ahead of the curve almost? It's a it's a messy process. You just kind of you listen to a lot of stuff. You're interested in a lot of stuff. I mean, if you look at the last few years that we were at Miller Theater, I'm really proud of that because in 2011 we did the Hyatt Chernovin 
portrait concert. And we had done a, a festival of her music the year before, but we really were really happy to have kind of done a lot of New York premieres on those two shows. Um, and then last year we presented Karin Rehnquist, the Swedish composer that's virtually unknown in New York, but her music's gorgeous and really, really unique. Nothing sounds like this. And on, on the one hand, it sounds very traditional. I mean, two measures sounds traditional. But the way she puts it together, the what she's trying to say, very unique voice. You know, and then in April, we're presenting Rebecca Saunders, you know, whose music, we played one of her pieces back in April, but her music does not get played much in the U.S. We've, we've done a few of her pieces, actually. Yeah, she lives in Berlin. Yes. Um, so, you know, we're interested in that because we have, we have great players and... You know, and our players are very international as well. So they're kind of working with all these composers. So these composers, you require different techniques to play them. You know, and it's not just physical techniques, but it's kind of like the, the, the emotional and the, the kind of rubato and the, the type of expressive qualities and the strings and so forth. So that's, that's really exciting for us. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to end this interview. So okay, thank you. good. <laughs> well, thanks so much for stopping by. And and no no problem. Thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure.